Welcome to the Brand the Interpreter podcast. I am your host, Mireya Perez, and this platform is dedicated to sharing the stories of language professionals, that is, the interpreters and translators from around the world. This show aims to highlight not just the profession, but mainly the people behind the amazing work. These are your stories about our profession, and this is the Brand the Interpreter podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Liberty Language Services and its new sister company, the Academy of Interpretation, that launched in early 2022. The Academy of Interpretation is an online education and learning platform for the language services industry. The AOI's mission is to expand access to educational courses while establishing a standard of quality and professionalism. They do this by bringing language service providers, content creators, and students together on an online platform that's accessible to everyone. The Academy of Interpretation was founded to address the widespread problem of untrained interpreters working in the field. The AOI offers professional accredited courses for interpreters and serves as a platform for organizations to refer their interpreters for training. The AOI is offering Brand the Interpreter listeners a 10% discount on all courses using the discount code AOI10BTI. This code cannot be combined with any other discounts. But check out the episode show notes for more information about the Academy of Interpretation or visit their website at www.academyofinterpretation.com. Liberty Language Services is a rapidly growing language service company that recently celebrated 11 years of providing language access services, and they are currently hiring freelance interpreters for a variety of languages. To find out more about Liberty or to apply, Check out the episode notes. Hey, language professionals from around the world. Welcome back to another episode of the Brand the Interpreter podcast. This is your host, Mireya Perez. Thanks for joining me again today. Hey, if you find this episode interesting, or if you really enjoy it, feel free to share it with a colleague. Also, I would be incredibly grateful if you rated and reviewed the podcast. Even if you're listening on a platform that doesn't have a rating system, head on over to www.brandtheinterpreter.com and send me your thoughts about the podcast. I look forward to hearing from you. And now, on with the show. Today's guest is Esther Boning. Esther is an international language industry expert with over 20 years of experience. She holds a degree in translation and interpreting skills and an MA in international relations from German University. She has worked on both sides of the Atlantic as a certified translator and interpreter, university professor, and language access consultant. Experienced in leading multicultural and diverse teams, she led a team of over 75 interpreters and translators for a large Massachusetts hospital system. Currently, she directs interpretation programs for Piedmont Global Language Solutions, PGLS, headquartered in Arlington, Virginia where she is responsible for all commercial and government interpreting programs. She is passionate about elevating the quality of the interpreting profession and has won an innovation award for her work around team building in healthcare. So, without further ado, please help me welcome Esther Bonin to the show. Esther, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to it. You've been looking forward to it. You've no idea how much I've been looking forward to this conversation. It's been what, two years? <laughs> I think about that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, granted, there's been a lot going on within the last few years. So I'm excited that we finally get to do this and get into some of these topics that um, I know I'm going to enjoy, and I'm pretty sure so is the audience. So once again, thank you. You're welcome. I'm very happy that after a pandemic, I can be here with you <laughs> and uh, we get to chat finally. Yeah, we totally do. So let's get started. Uh, I'd like to begin uh, as I do with all of my guests, which is taking us back into uh, your youth and your childhood. So tell us, what did you aspire to be when you grew up? 
I'm going to tell you a story that it's probably very revealing that I was not going to be a doctor or a musician. <laughs> My parents always tell that I used to sit by the port of the little fishing village where I used to live in the north of Spain. It's the name of the village is Luarca. And many boats will come in the summer with flags from all over the world. And my parents always said that I love to sit down and see the people coming off the boats and see what they were talking about and what language they were speaking. Um, years later, my parents signed me up for a music class and my music teacher said, I think this girl should learn something else than piano. How about English? <laughs> and that was the beginning of my adventure. My Yay. piano teacher recognized I had zero talent for music <laughs> and perhaps some talent for languages. And that's where my adventure began. How great. Where did you grow up, by the way, Esther? I grew up in Spain, a small village in the north, in a place called Asturias. But uh, this wonderful industry took me all over Europe. I lived in Belfast. I lived in London, in Berlin, in Barcelona, in the north of France, in a place called Brest. We joke that I pick cities with B. Um, and then many years later, I moved to the States. Which city do you think I moved to? What city did you move to? It had to have a B, so Boston. <laughs> <laughs> I moved west of Boston, and um, I, I just love it. I love being able to go back and forth between Europe and the States and soak up all the different cultures. What's a fond childhood memory you have? I have many. Um, I've many. I was a very happy child. Um, I think if I go back to some of those summers that I spent learning English in England, I can tell you that I'm very short. I'm only four, nine. And I was even shorter back then. So I remember <laughs> arriving at the the house family, the house of the family who was hosting me for the summer, and I couldn't reach the closet to hang my clothes. And I kept on asking for, uh, in English, I was calling it a stairs. I need a stairs. And I spent probably 10 minutes going up and down the stairs of that house, trying to explain to this woman what I needed. That was the beginning of realizing how important language is to shape the way you think right? I didn't need a stairs. Of course, I needed a ladder, but I didn't know mm -hmm. because in Spanish, you know, the word is the same. Mm. So that was a fun, fun memory. Um, yeah. Which I still, I still tell my kid to this day when he struggles learning languages. Uh, and now your child is learning languages. How great is that? It, it couldn't be any <laughs> other way. He's now bilingual Spanish and uh, English, and uh, he's learning Chinese and French. Oh, my. Yeah. Take that yeah. on for a task. Yeah. So, so let's go back to the fact that you did not grow up then in a bilingual household, and rather uh, your parents were the ones that started your journey in that second language. Walk us through that journey. I think my parents have always been very clear about the fact that my education was going to be my inheritance. There was nothing else. I come from a family of very hardworking people. Uh, my mother was a waitress. My dad was a policeman who, you know, before had worked in many different trades. And uh, education was one of the principal fundamental values in my house. My father was a voracious reader. My mother was always a very curious, intelligent woman. And um, I think when that music teacher said that I was not able to do music, <laughs> they probably sat down and they, they thought about the advice, right? And uh, uh, they were always very good at realizing what they didn't know and take, you know, the word of others that were perhaps more... Um, intellectual or savvy in these matters, right, um, into account. And I, I was signed up for my first English lesson 
instead of my boring piano lesson. So, so that's how it started. Then I had a wonderful teacher. I still remember her name who asked me, um, you do have a gift for this. Why don't you spend some time studying the language abroad? And I knew that going back home and saying I need money to do this was going to be problematic, mm. right? So she, that teacher told me, you can get grants, you can get money to do this. And uh, little did you know, I graduated with honors, I got a grant to study abroad, and uh, and the rest was history. But um, it's it's so interesting how there are people that you meet along your life. In my case, it's mainly teachers or mentors that really are going to determine your way forward. And she was instrumental in doing that. I love the stories of when teachers are, you know, show up. It's not every teacher, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And but there are those that absolutely do have that gift of giving and giving in an educational setting. And even if it's a whisper of inspiration, you know, or a thought to get your own mind started in in Mm. hopeful pursuit of something. Mm -hmm. Wow. I appreciate those teachers so very much, you know, because all it takes is that, that one word or phrase to get Mm -hmm. you going and inspired. I had a guest not too long ago that um, spoke about once he learned that he could read, right. Once he, he learned his first word in, in reading that all of a sudden it opened this door that would never be able to allow him the opportunity to go back to what it was before, because he realized mm-hmm. I can read now. And he, it opened the door. I just, I loved when mm-hmm. he said that because it opened the door to something new, a new world. Mm-hmm. What door, mental door did the English language open for you? What did you dream of once you knew that you were on your way to learning English? Oh gosh. Um, I think I'm still dreaming about all all the things that learning a language kind of opens for people, right? Um, to me, English was just the beginning because it opened the door, not just for the English culture, but many other languages. Once you did one, why not study another one? So after English, I learned French. After French, I studied a little Italian, then Catalan. Uh, then I loved to chat with my Greek friends and listen to how they were speaking. It looked like Spanish, but it wasn't. I've always been very curious. So I think like learning English just made my, curio- my curiosity grow bigger. Mm. Yeah. It was this opening to different worlds, different cultures, different ways of thinking. Um, and at the core of it, your ability to be the bridge to those worlds. That's pretty, when you think about it, that's pretty profound. To be able to be the bridge between people that otherwise will not understand each other. That's yeah. That's beautiful. That's it's deep. Yeah. When you think about that, you know, how that comes together ultimately, which leads me to my next question regarding how you even ended up in the industry because obviously learning a language does not equal interpreter translator. So at what point did the industry meet you halfway? I think I went in search of the industry, quite frankly. Um at some at some deep level, I knew I wanted to learn English. I wanted to learn about the culture, but I wanted to do something else, right? And it's that that idea of being a bridge that was really at the core of what I wanted to do. So I decided to study translation and interpreting skills. That's a four year degree. I did it in Spain. I studied in Barcelona. And that's part of what took me all over Europe. Each year of my degree had a requirement to study abroad. So I studied across multiple different universities in Europe as part of that degree. Um, So having said that, once I finished my degree, thinking that I would be a translator, I realized that I still did not want to do that. Um, I said, I want to be more of a bridge. 
just more than that. And um, so the interpreting part really was more um, right then and there. And um, I felt tremendous pleasure in just being in the conference room, on the back, on the booth with my headphones and making it happen right there, right? That was a thrill. Um, And then as the years went by, um, I really enjoy sharing what I had learned. So I became a professor at university. And um, I taught translation interpreting courses, regular language courses, discourse analysis. and, um, And then I realized that there was much more out there that I could still do. <laughs> and I became fascinated when I moved to the States between the difference between what programs at university were teaching and the actual skills on the ground and the actual needs on the ground for interpreting professionals. And uh, that's when really my career truly started in the language industry. Mm. You started as a conference interpreter then. Many years ago. (laughs) (laughs) I find it that it's so great um, to think about how your parents gave you this notion that education was going to be your inheritance, that education is a fundamental value. And that you bring this with you in every step of the way, including the way in which you're viewing your experiences, mm-hmm. right, from abroad to the States and making those connections and identifying that. I love that you just said there's more, right? There's more than mm-hmm. I can do. You believe that there is a vast array of opportunities in the industry if you are willing to continue to learn. So how did you bring this together, your realization of a gap between academic and the real life boots on the ground? How did you get started in a different direction? Well, I, at some point, joined um, a community college where I was teaching Spanish for the healthcare professions. And uh, a nurse was taking my class and she asked me, she's like, Esther, how come you are not? doing this for a hospital system. So I applied for a hospital system as an interpreter. And little did I know, I was later hired to lead the department. um, And I was under the management of someone with many years of experience in the language industry. So I learned a lot about language access, the legal framework. And I had the opportunity to work with a team of over 65 interpreters who were doing a fabulous job. But at the same time, I could see there were very little opportunities for them to truly learn how to develop their professional skills. And a lot has happened since then, right? But right at that time when I started, there was not much. So um, another thing that is extremely interesting to me is like I like to look for the areas where disciplines get together, right? I feel like it's in that intersection of disciplines where the potential for great advance, advancement lies, right? Um, so, so when I work with interpreters on the ground in a healthcare setting, and then I work as a professor at university, it was clear that there was more happening in the middle that was not developed, right? And that perhaps we needed influence from other disciplines to be able to push forward the learning that we needed to push. Mm -hmm. So what am I going with all this is, while I work in healthcare, uh, I started at a point where there was a big paradigm shift And critical medical humanities was truly making a stand, if you want, right? And critical medical humanities is um, this interdisciplinary approach in the field of medicine that combines art, uh, humanities, um, social sciences. And it basically says, okay, 
you could use humanities and these disciplines, not just to improve the way doctors are trained and their education, but also as a way to critique the actual system and improve it, mm. right? So again, is these areas where disciplines mix, right? That I think there's tremendous potential to really change the system, right? Critical medical humanities is non-conformist. And I think I'm non-conformist <laughs> because I think we can do more, like you said, right? Um, so I took advantage of that. I partner with the medical school. I partner with the diversity officer. Why? Because in some of these conversations, we could present the role of the interpreter as a tool that is underutilized to really promote equity and you know, dismantle some of those systems of oppression that unfortunately are still taking place uh, in the way we, we deliver medicine nowadays, right? And it is in these intersections that I, I like to be. That's where I thrive naturally, right? So I'll give you an example. Um, I like to participate in the Association of Language Companies bridge webinars, where we bridge the gap between academia and language programs with the language industry, right? But I also like to shake things up a bit. And because I am from Spain and I spent a long time in Europe, but now I'm American, I spend a lot of time in America, I think in that intersection, of joining the American industry with the language industry in Europe, there is so much potential for mm. learning and sharing that will benefit us all and ultimately our end consumer, right? Our customers. Yeah. And we're definitely going to get into the conversations of number one, communication, number two, language access, number three, equity. But before we get to that juicy stuff. Let's take it back a little bit and have you break down for us uh, something that you shared with regards to uh, how people are doing things through what lens, through what glasses. And you say that much of what we do is filtered, but by what others have called the white middle-class glasses. Expand on this a bit, please. I think that a statement can be simplified, but saying you don't know what you don't know. Right. And you said before that my parents value education and they threw that at me from an early age. Right. Um, so then I do value what others bring to the table. I can learn from others because I know that I don't know certain things. Right. So. At, at times. Um, as a, a majority white middle class, you don't give much thought to the troubles and the realities of others, other demographics that are around you. And perhaps you don't interact with them all that much, right? And when you are in healthcare environments, you get sometimes um, the most vulnerable demographics seeking your services, right? But those who are delivering those services the majority might conform in that white middle class, which means that when they are providing care, when they are analyzing an issue, they do it from a certain perspective. Um, one of the things that I did was to run poverty simulations. What is a poverty simulation? If you ask my mother, do you really need to run a simulation to teach people what it's like to be poor? Yes, you do, because we see it in our little white middle class bubbles, uh, we forget uh, or we simply don't know the hardships that others go through, right? If you look at social determinants of health, um, language barriers is out there, right? Uh, but issues with transportation, food deserts, you forget that when you live in your nice white middle class suburban uh, development, right? You have a nice supermarket next to you, but a lot of the people that we serve, uh, that I had the pleasure to serve when, when I was um, working in healthcare, they live in urban food deserts. They don't have time uh, 
to come to doctor's visits or when they do, they don't have the transportation to get there. All these impacts, their ability to seek care and the care they receive when in front of them, there are people that don't understand and they might deem them as non-compliant. Well, you know, Mm. um, what else is behind that label, right? Mm. Uh, This is what I'm talking about when um, I say that people have to take off their white uh, middle-class lenses. Mm. How do you bridge those conversations? Because you have potentially the conversations with uh, the staff that are getting into the cultural aspect, cultural empathy, uh, things, you know, such as poverty levels and how that comes into play. But then there's also the other side, which is your language professionals that may not necessarily know how to convey. It's almost Mm -hmm. like a thought of, you should know this. These are the people (laughs) we serve. Mm-hmm. Where is that delicate interconnection so that the two can come together in consensus of the mm-hmm. people they're serving? If you are lucky enough and uh, you work for an organization that sees the value in this type of initiatives, I can tell you that um, some interpreters in my team were able to create workshops and participate in work, participate in workshops where they will be training future doctors, still medical students or residents in what it is like to work with an interpreter. So again, these are interpreters, professionals in communication and language barriers, right? But also cultural brokers that have a lot to share. And uh, if you manage to get them included in some of those discussions, then magic happens. Magic happens indeed. It's uh, like someone shared not too long ago, um, it's allowing them a seat at the table to be Mm -hmm. able to bring in uh, that particular topic that no one else is privy of. No one else Mm -hmm. has that knowledge and the language professional does. Mm-hmm. And this is true, Mireya, not just on a healthcare environment, right? Exactly. You see it happening time and time again in other areas. You work on education. You're probably going to see the same thing. Parents want to do what is right for their kids. Exactly. They most definitely, right? So sometimes they just need that barrier taken down so they can do just so, right? Being parents. That's right. Yes, absolutely. And, and, you said it earlier, they're looked at perhaps when they are looking through these glasses, um, they're not interested in their child education. They don't want to take mm-hmm. part when, when mm-hmm. in reality, we should be looking past that deeper than that. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and that leads me to my next question, Esther, which is um, what does the incorporation of cultural humility mm-hmm. and language access look like? Well, that's a great question. Um, I love the concept of cultural humility because it's dynamic. It's something that does not stop. It continues, right? While in more traditional approaches, cultural competence kind of means that you're working towards something that you are going to achieve, right? Cultural humility parts from this idea, very humble idea, that you are constantly learning right? Mm. Um, So through cultural humility, uh, this again is born in the healthcare context, right? But in, in cultural humility, doctors and students of medicine realize that patients are partners. They are equals. There's no imbalance of power. And, um, In that partnership, a true conversation needs to happen, right? Uh, If you don't know something, what are you going to do? Pretend or you're going to ask? I often say people want to be asked, how do they do this? Why they didn't do that? They want to have an open conversation. So cultural humility is this framework in which 
doctors and students of medicine can look at their practice from a different lenses, not that white middle class lens, mm-hmm. right? And they can do so because they look at their patient as a partner. Mm-hmm. Cultural humility, I, I feel most definitely w- would bring in the cultural aspects. It's difficult to tie the language component into the cultural component. How do we do that? Well, in, in the past, um, let's take, for example, when doctors teach or when they are taught, when doctors are taught how to do an interview for a patient, right? Um, Very few curriculums, to say none until recently, incorporated the role of the interpreter in that type of class. Mm. Yet we know that uh, the demographics in the U.S. are changing. Our LEP numbers are constantly moving up. Mm -hmm. So you cannot obviate this reality, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you make this happen? Well, it is a matter of telling these young students, right? The way you do an interview with an LEP patient is slightly different than the way you're going to do it with an English speaking patient. Why? It's going to take longer because you're going to have an interpreter in the room. And yes, it's going to be a little bit more messy, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because sometimes an interpreter needs to stop the flow of conversation or something is not clear, or the interpreter might have something to add. And you will say, what could possibly an interpreter have to add? I am the doctor. But yes, you are the doctor. But you have those, maybe those lenses that you need somebody who is also a cultural broker to come over and tell you some more that perhaps you did not consider. Um, When we say this, sometimes interpreters or those who manage interpreters, they get a little uneasy because that cultural brokering piece can also be very sticky and put the interpreter into uncomfortable situations. So, however, I think it is extremely important that interpreters know that that cultural brokering piece is crucial for the well-being of their patients, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll give you an example, for, for example. Um, I I had a Nepali interpreter who worked with us for many years and he was doing a pulmonary function lab test. And one of the questions in that questionnaire has to do with the fact of uh, using tobacco products or smoking. And um, that patient had filled in the form saying that, nope, he had never smoked tobacco, no tobacco products. Yet the Nepali interpreter thought that there was something else in there that the American uh, lab technician was not considering. How could she possibly know that in Nepal, a lot of these men were chewing betel nut and that it could have some, perhaps, some um, side effects in the lungs? Well, it turns out that the, the patient had some issues in his lungs. So the technician was getting slightly upset because this this patient kept on responding, no, I never smoked tobacco. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So finally, the interpreter, after much consideration, stopped the conversation and said, excuse me, would you mind asking the patient if he chews betel nut? And then he had to also go over and explain what betel nut was. Whether this had a healthcare um, side effect or not, is not for the interpreter to know, right? However, it is for the interpreter to to really say and share because it can be something that could be potentially life-saving, right? I think this topic can open the door to so many other topics. And, you know, we, we know what our standards of practice as healthcare interpreters are. Should this be something that is part of our curriculum? Should in the event of maybe future review of current standards of practice, this this evolve into into something that's a norm for the interpreter, which I gather that 
it's not across the board where the cultural brokering um, does or does not happen. I realize that it, it really does depend on on who you're speaking with in terms of, you know, there's there's a wide divide between yes, you know, we should be, no, there shouldn't be. Um, but perhaps there's a lot of misinformation that's out there with regards to the way in which we should show up mm-hmm. if we are putting mm-hmm. on the hat of this cultural broker. What side are you on? I'm going to respond with a very interesting um, situation. I lived myself when I was shadowing interpreters. I come from the conference interpreting world where we cherish the concept of invisibility, right? The interpreter is invisible. And when you look at some of the standards of practice in healthcare right now, it is clear that uh, some of those standards are based on that invisibility concept. Yet when I arrive on my first emergency room visit, I quickly realized that I was no longer invisible, packed in a tiny room with one interpreter, the patient, a family member, a doctor and a nurse. I was no longer invisible. I was as much a participant in that situation as the doctor or the nurse or the patient. Um, So, When we look at the standards of practice as they stand right now, I I think all of them are there because they really help ensure accuracy. Mm -hmm. However, I would say that if I were an interpreter on the ground right now, I would ask those working on the standards to include our voices, the interpreters' voices, when Mm -hmm. they're looking at redesigning these standards. Why? Because I think oftentimes interpreters run into situations that continue to push that invisibility boundary. Mm -hmm. And I think we need perhaps a better description of what that cultural brokering, role boundaries is, and perhaps much more training around being able to stick to those standards. Uh, I need help. I'm scrambling to find interpreters for our board meeting. We have a staffed Spanish interpreter, but we need Korean, Farsi, and Arabic. Plus, we have a slew of IEP meetings coming up, most of them in exotic languages. I'm calling everywhere. I know what we need. I met the perfect translation agency at OCDE's Interpreters and Translators Conference, Certified Interpreting Services. They offer in-person and virtual services. Certified Interpreting Services? Yes. They're professional, warm, and perfect for our diverse district's needs. How do we contact them? Call or email. It's all on their website. CISinterpreters.com. CISinterpreters.com. That's just what we need. I'm contacting them now. Thank you for calling Seraphim Interpreting Services. This is Jasmine. And I think like that opens up, you know, the the opportunity for even further discussions and um and and a lot of back and forth, obviously, right? Like as I mentioned earlier, we do have uh, on one side saying one thing, on the other side saying another. Uh, but today's conversation is actually not about this particular subject, although I did, I was super interested in, in identifying what your take on that was, because I think there's always room um, to evolve. You know, if populations evolve, if communities evolve, if uh, industries evolve, uh, where are we in that? So um, mm-hmm. I'm always interested in, in, in understanding and knowing a little bit of how people are truly feeling about this. What has been an important different perspective that you've had the opportunity to learn from with working with global teams? Because one thing we haven't mentioned is that your current situation allows you the opportunity to work with a global team. So all these conversations mm-hmm. that you've been having about, you know, the different specializations and being able to bring uh, sort of an interconnection uh, with regards to these topics has led you now the opportunity to share these perspectives with a global environment. So what has Mm -hmm. been those important different perspectives that you've learned? Because as we continue talking about learning and educating, Mm -hmm. what have you learned from working Mm -hmm. with the global teams? So yes, right now I'm the interpretation programs manager for a language service company called PGLS. We are based in um, Arlington, Virginia, but we do have teams 
in Argentina. We do have teams in the West Coast. We do have um, members that are actually all over the world. <laughs> so my team is in Argentina, but PGLS as a whole has team members and departments all over the world. So when you ask me, what have I learned from that? A lot. The way we do business in one country or another, the way we talk about problems, the way we ideate solutions, all that is so culturally tight to the country where you are, right? Mm -hmm. So once again, what is my passion? But to be a bridge between those cultures, right? That's why one of the things that I enjoy the most is being able to communicate across all these different cultures that are part of the organization. So what have I learned? I learned that um, when somebody seems upset, maybe that's for you as an Anglo-Saxon English speaker, but maybe what is coming through is horrendous Argentinian passion, you know? <laughs> so, so sometimes it just takes... Um, it just takes a curious eye, right, mm. to, to really dig deep. And, uh, and at the end, we're all humans, right? We're all humans. We show up to work wanting to do a good job. And uh, one of the things that I'm very proud in this organization is that, one, our mission is equity. And one of our main values is respect. So I think with those two things, we can go places. And... Um, I have a phenomenal team and um, I am just very, very fortunate to be able to lead them. You know, in recent years that we've been able to see, unfortunately, I wish I could say, you know, a long time ago, um, but in very recent years, we've been able to see the social unrest, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of it having to do with racism, discrimination, things of the like. Um, and so the word equity we saw take take a form of a buzzword suddenly mm -hmm. with particularly within organizations. Um, mm -hmm. I know that for a fact, in my particular uh, public school system, the word equity began to suddenly appear a lot in in our approaches uh, as mm -hmm. far as creating an equity board policy, right? To mm -hmm. really, hone in on the fact that this agency will, will operate based on equality. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and so it, it, it was interesting to see that all these other components took shape of these equity discussions, except mm -hmm. for one, mm -hmm. which was language access. <laughs> and so I go back to this topic of how, we, the, the potentially people that are working with a, attempting to convey mm -hmm. that language access belongs in the topics or the discussions of equity, how is that even a topic to get started? How would you say we make that connection Mm -hmm. Because again, we go back to remember when you said you, you talked with administrators in the hospital and the and the personnel, and then you have the 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 interpreter that says, "But this is a given, and that's just not enough." Yeah, <laughs> I've found so out. So th that's that's a great question and one that I feel very passionate about. Um, I cannot think of a better way to achieve equity for limited English proficient patients than by providing interpreters and translators, right? However, you know, that is statement, the fact that it needs to be explained already tells us that some people need a different set of glasses to look through at this problem, right? So that's where advocates, thought leaders in the industry are key. So I will say, how do you do this, right? I am an optimist. <laughs> so despite the fact that, yes, there is a lot of racism and rest, but I also think there's more people out there, more than ever, that truly recognize that there are these um, 
social and political dimensions of language access. What do I mean by this? When we work to dismantle language barriers, right? We, we know that we do so because there's social structure and social systems that are based on a dominant language. Mm. So if we want to imagine a world that is more just and where there's more equity, you also need to think about language as a system of oppression. And you need to be able to move from the old paradigm that took us so far and actually like made a lot of language access companies like uh, be born out of this thing, right? It's like the, the legal framework of language access has taken us so far. But I think we are now at this paradigm shift where we need to start talking and implementing measures that are more based on language justice, mm. right? And this passes through recognizing that as many other oppressor, systems of oppression, a language is also a barrier and an assist, a system of oppression. And yes, I do love the fact that we are able to um, talk about the fact that these conversations also need to occur because more often than not, at least it's been my experience and with the people that I've, I've, I've been able to connect with and open up with and, and network, you know, in, in our area, you know, and I bring it, and I bring it down all the way down to, you know, the local level cities, you know, public school systems. Um, and, and I'm always looking at it from that angle, but I, I, the more I speak to uh, thought leaders and professionals like you, the more I see those intersections of connectivity, even though they're mm-hmm. completely different, we're dealing with the same thing. And mm-hmm. so the, the, the fact that it's usually us, the, mm-hmm. the, the service providers that are having to navigate through these difficult conversations with administrators that potentially mm-hmm. are looking at it from mm-hmm. you know this this english only lenses not not saying that they're saying english only but you know like like you just mm-hmm. mentioned um um being able to look at it from the framework of a dominant language right mm-hmm. um it's difficult to have these these conversations without having the ways to be able to open the door to these conversations. So I completely agree that we should be having these topics as even a form of training, kind of like the cultural brokering thing, you know, mm-hmm. form of training, because at the end of the day, as much as we want to bring in the people, the key people that have, you know, these, these words easily come out and convey mm-hmm. the message maybe um, with other leaders, the fact is that some of the responsibility, if not all, usually falls under, you know, the lonely interpreter out there trying to make a difference bigger than they are. Mm-hmm. Yes, but I do. I, again, I said I'm an optimist, right? I do think that there are key players right now in the language industry that are talking the talk and walking the walk, right? So. If you are going to work with um, a language service company, what I would say is make sure that you are choosing a true partner, someone that can actually bring value to you, that goes beyond the tool that you actually need, which is an interpreter or a translator. Make sure you work with someone that understands the, the issue at heart. Because I think that unfortunately, right, unfortunately, a lot of our interpreters feel like they are alone when they're battling these issues. But it shouldn't be like that. If you have a company with a strong system of what I call feedback mechanisms, right, and where your interpreters know that somebody is there for them and the clients they serve, right? And um, these Setting up these processes takes time, it's not easy, Um, but once you do it, 
As a language service company, you can reap the rewards. There is return on investment in knowing that your clients and your interpreters, who ultimately are the ones doing the work, right, are happy, are listened to, and, uh, and they feel like they belong to a community that feels that we have the best interest of that final consumer at heart. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. I have a favorite quote that I'm sure uh, I'm sure not only you've heard it, but um, you you share in in the likeness of it as well. And it's by George Bernard Shaw uh, that says that the single biggest problem in communication is the illusion that mm-hmm. it has taken. It place. has taken place. <laughs> <laughs> and with this yeah. topic, I think it's a great it's a great example of yes. How much effort do you feel is involved in conveying the communication with regards to equity, language access and and everything else that we've talked about? What is that one key strategy you would share with the audience regarding communication, especially of something that your your target audience may not necessarily know anything about? It's, it's not an easy endeavor. And I think it requires a multi-prone approach. And uh, everybody within an organization, I would say, is responsible for moving forward a little bit, that equity needle right? Um, It wouldn't be fair to say that it should just rest on the person who is in charge of the interpreting department or or the translation department, right? Um, It's everybody in the organization should be looking at this problem and participate in solving it. So what does this mean? This means that, one, you can bring advocates into the conversation right? Um, you could learn from thought leaders in the, in, in the space. Um, you need to make sure that all these lessons start at home and they're trickling down through your organization, right? Again, talk the talk and walk the walk, right? Um, and then I think what is very, very important is that you don't give up on any opportunity to make change. That's key. I think particularly when you're beginning these topics, if you are the one to open the door first to this conversation, um, it could be quite a lonely journey. And and, and oftentimes it could be uh, something that maybe you're not as supported with, uh, colleagues included. So, um, yes, knowing that, you know, this is going to be something that's long and treacherous. (laughs) But this is what is so beautiful about, I think, the language industry as a whole, right? It might be hard in a particular organization, but you can rest assured that there are many in our community that do care about these topics. So I would say, this is why I say to interpreters, join a professional organization, find your tribe, because in moments of hardship, and you will have many, right? And, you know, you've heard all the interpreters that suffer from recarious trauma, who have nobody to talk to about, right? It is so important that you can find a listening ear to really share some of the hard things that we go through every day. And, um, and then also look at the bright side. There's, there's a lot that we are achieving. That's there's right. more than ever, there is conversation about these topics. That's right. I, am, I am extremely passionate about the fact that, yes, we're talking about language access, but more and more, you see the topic of language justice out there. And I think for me, that is that is a paradigm shift. That's how we make progress, right? We start framing the issues in a different way that is going to lead us to more targeted decisions. Hmm. Very well said. I mean, I think of someone as you speak that I feel these words are definitely going to connect with them and hopefully continue to inspire, if not reignite the inspiration 
around this topic. So thank you for having shared that, Esther. As we get to the close of today's conversation, I'd like to give you the opportunity to share anything that is in your heart, in your mind with the public, uh, with this particular audience, I should say, uh, with regards to the industry. What is what is your, your hope for the future of interpreting? That's very nice of you to allow me a few minutes to, <laughs> to, to, to say what I have in my heart right now. I, I am part of a company who inspires me every day. Mm-hmm. Um, where I am building every day a language service company that is truly talking the talk and walking the walk, right? So what I would say is continue to learn. If you are a bilingual person out there listening to Mireya's podcast, if you are wondering if there's a space for you in the language industry, I will say, Absolutely. As long as you're willing to learn. And this is very important because as an interpreter right now, in a profession that is still developing in the United States, you're going to have to learn standards of practice, code of ethics, and uh, methodology to be able to render, um, you know, a deposition. You're going to need to learn note-taking. What's consecutive? What's simultaneous? Um, what tool am I using today? Am I doing RSI? Am I using just a, a, a platform that this particular provider wants me to use? So there's definitely a lot of learning, but the industry will take you beyond translating and interpreting if you want to. There are opportunities to become marketing experts with an language industry background, salespeople, um, directors, CEOs, diversity consultants, mergers and acquisitions people that have industry knowledge. And I can even begin to tell you the vast array of other jobs in the industry that require more than just language skills. So if you are one of those lucky ones that has technical skills and also, also uh, a bilingual background, just come over. We need localizers. We need people to be subtitling. Uh, We need project managers. Um, Just reach out to me. I am happy to hear from all of you and guide you because this is a booming industry with a lot of opportunity. And if you land in the right organization and you can align your values with a mission-driven company, you'll never be bored and you'll be extremely fulfilled. I, I love that you said that, Esther, because I think I'm one always preaching on here that we shouldn't look at our profession as strictly about the language piece that we should be bringing in um, other skill sets that we have, Mm -hmm. because aside from having the ability to speak another language, we have all these other skill sets that we're able Mm -hmm. to combine. And I think back in the beginning of our conversation today, how you brought in the topic of what was it? Critical medical humanities, humanities, and how that notion is about the combination of, you know, different disciplines Mm -hmm. in order to create something that's more evolved and more, I think, reflective of the communities that we're working with today. I think it's the same thing for Mm -hmm. our industry, right? Mm -hmm. Being able to combine these skill sets that it doesn't have to be one or that it could be one and, Mm -hmm. and be able to create something new that again, will come back and not just serve the community, but serve ourselves for it to be and sound more fulfilling. Right. Well, let's not forget that we are part of the community. A lot of us in the language industry, Mm -hmm. we come from these communities that we serve. A lot of my interpreters they are serving their own community. Mm-hmm. So we're doing it for ourselves and our communities. Absolutely. Before we go, where can our listeners find out more about you and the work that you do? 
Yes, people can continue the conversation with me if something is of their interest and they want to reach out. You can see me in social media on LinkedIn under Esther Bonin. And uh, there you will find also my email address. I'm happy to receive emails from you. And it's ebonin at pglsinc.com. I'll make sure to connect the links uh, in the episode notes so that the audience has a way of connecting with Esther. Esther, today's conversation I knew was going to be a rich conversation. And I have to say that it was definitely worth the wait. And so I am ever so grateful that you took the time and the and the opportunity to come on this platform to share your story to share your knowledge and your experiences and to re-inspire reignite the passion that has existed there you know all this time but now we're able to set another day with a new intention to only further and improve our industry so thank you for the opportunity again i appreciate it so much Thanks for having me, Mireya, and thanks for the work you're doing to elevate the profession. Hey, thanks for sticking around till the very end. If you'd like to connect with me, head on over to the website, brandtheinterpreter.com, and click on the Connect With Me tab. You can also stay connected on social media, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, as Brand the Interpreter, or Mireya Perez on LinkedIn. Till next time.